when we started thinking of what could we talk about, I think one of the first realizations was that, of course, the last few months impacted us personally, us professionally, and also us in terms of academics and doing research. And that was, in the end, the whole idea behind this first session, to think a bit of, well, with the current changes in place, how, how does this impact our professional life and especially our research? Um, before we go into detail and I introduce our speakers, however, I wanted um, to, to give you a short opportunity to share your impressions with us. And I would ask Emily um, to share our poll that we wanted. So the developments of the past two months had an impact on my work. The developments of the past two months had an impact, oh, sure, sorry, that should read on my research. Question two is on my research. And the third one, I expect the COVID-19 implications to have an impact on my research in the next six months. Is it positive, negative, or I don't know. Okay, very interesting. So we had 50% saying that the developments had a negative impact on their work. 23% um, um, saying they don't know. On the second question, again, for, sorry for the typo, that should be the developments of the past two months had an impact on my research. We have approximately the, the same amount of 45% finding a negative impact. A bit more people say they don't know. And then the third one is, I expect the COVID-19 implications to have an impact on my research in the next six months. We have 55% negative, uh, but also then a good split between positive and I don't know. Thanks, so much. Thanks very much for, for doing this experiment with us. But we also thought it would be interesting to feel a bit of temperature in the room of how people experience the current, the current uh, environment. In preparation for this event, um, I was very pleased that three colleagues agreed to kick us off in sharing their insights. And we have with us Federica Bicchi from the EUI and the London School of Economics. Maybe Federica wants to wave at everyone. Perfect. <laughs> uh, Federica is a long-standing Nortia member and she was already in the, in the previous network of Antero. And she works a lot in EU foreign policy making, European diplomacy and the EU relationship with the Mediterranean. And what I also really enjoyed always learning from Federica is how to think about engaging with non-academics in, in sharing our insights and also our research results. So I think that's also always a very nice second leg uh, that we shouldn't forget is very important. Then we have with us uh, Carlos Bravo. Maybe Carlos wants to wave briefly. Uh, Carlos Bravo is a predoctoral fellow at the EPA Barcelona, where he started, well, he is, I think, in the second year of his PhD, uh, where he looks at differentiated integration and transboundary challenges in the European Union. So I guess Carlos couldn't have wished for a better time at the moment. I'm also very happy that Carlos agreed to join us as a speaker because he is now in the committee of the US's British Forum. So for the members that are here and are early career scholars, please check out the UASIS Graduate Forum. They also organize uh, quite a lot of events at the moment, which I think are really helpful, or I'm sure Carlos would also be happy to answer any questions that you might have. Our third speaker is Mariana Lovato uh, from University College Dublin. And uh, Mariana just finished her first year in her PhD um, where she is looking at the role of member states in EU foreign policy making. Uh, and again, I think it's really nice that we have three speakers with different backgrounds, but also from different countries uh, who can, who can um, kick us off. 
I asked our speakers to think about three issues or that we do three rounds of themes in order um, to, to think about foreign policy research in times of COVID-19 restric uh, restrictions. And I think you could, you could really theme them as the past, the present, and the future. So I asked our speakers to, on the one hand, think about how has their life, their work changed in the past, in the past weeks. Uh, ask them to think or to, to share with us in a second round then of thinking of being in the now, what does the current situation mean for them as researchers, as academics, probably also as instructors. And then the third one that we want to do is really looking into the future and also thinking about what impact does the current situation have on the long run, or maybe also a more normative question of what impact should it have. So I think also there we can then talk a bit of maybe it's a good moment to actually realize that some of the practices that we have been holding on to maybe we should change and it is a good moment to think about this. These are the three themes. Uh, we will try to dedicate approximately 10 minutes to these three themes and afterwards we will open up for question answer and for a discussion but I will then uh, also explain once more how we are going to do, do this. Without further ado, I would really I would like to hand over to our three speakers. And I would really like to start with the first question um, where I wanted to ask our speakers, how did the COVID-19 restrictions impact their work and life as a researcher? Did you feel sufficiently supported, supported by whom? Uh, but also what was good and what was missing? So these were the questions that I had in mind. And without further ado, I hand over to Federica. Thank you. Thank you very much, Heidi. It's uh, great uh, to be here today and see many uh, familiar faces and uh, many colleagues um, to have what, uh, in my view, is going to be a pretty informal conversation uh, about today's topic. Let me start by telling you where I was when this crisis started. Uh, right at the beginning of the pandemic, at the end of February, uh, I did a quick exploratory trip to Tunisia. I wasn't particularly meticulous in my uh, research uh, or field trip planning because I knew I was going back. Uh, I was planning to go back at the end of March, in May, and again in June. And so I just took it as a sort of an opportunity to go for a few days, you know, start a conversation with a couple of people, get more names, you know, email addresses, get to learn the basics because I'm not an expert in Tunisia. And uh, I, am, uh, I am still <laughs> beginning a piece of research on border management uh, as a European foreign policy instrument. So the, the most basic research objective was uh, to learn how to get a taxi in Tunisia um, up to, you know, build some rapport with key uh, stakeholders. It was pretty vague. Um, in the end, I did go, but I learned two lessons. The first one is that for the first time ever, probably, I checked my travel insurance. Um, as I was leaving, my uh, you know, news feed was getting more and more alarming in terms of what was going on in Northern Italy. 
And so as I was waiting at the airport for the first time ever, also I registered my travel details with LSE and with the Italian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. I must admit, um, I wouldn't say I did it in the past, but for the first time I was very diligent in doing it because I, I felt uh, you know, how important I was going uh, to be potentially. The second lesson was um, of a different kind. Um, it dawned on me uh, that um, uh, despite my affiliation with the London School of Economics, I had to tell my interviewees that I was coming from Italy, uh, the country uh, where every day 100 more people were discovered to have uh, coronavirus. And uh, unsurprisingly, a couple of people uh, decided to postpone our meeting or you know, Skype it. Surprisingly, a couple of people that I did meet went out of their way to shake my hand, you know, have a, a quick uh, embrace, which I thought was a bit, you know, uh, concerning at the time. Um, but the best indicator that I was on shaking grounds were taxi drivers. Um, all taxi drivers, you know, asked me, you know, where, where do you come from? And when whenever I responded to Italy, they gave me a quick flash look in the rear mirror that to me, you know, it, it really taught me the lesson of informed consent. <laughs> you know, that you need to give something to people about how to interact with you, about what you're bringing to them. So that was very interesting and valuable. To answer um, Heidi's question, I mean, uh, I learned a couple of, of, of um, lessons for the future, but in the meantime, I have been uh, knocked back by one year. Um, I don't envisage going out to Tunisia again till spring 2021. Uh, and part of this is because of COVID-19, etc. But part of it is also due to the preparations for online teaching for this uh, uh, fall and winter um, and spring term uh, at LSE will be a mix of everything which however um, will be very labor intensive and therefore you know I am uh, moving towards a, a teaching preparation mode and I don't see um, uh, the possibility to carry out a, a research trip for for months, but I'll leave it at that. Uh, thank you very much, Federica. So this idea of insurance is informed consent, but I think also for all of us to notice that we can't just continue as normal, but we will have to think of how to adapt to different demands as well. I think also a lot of discussion will be about work-life balances and how to also separate and divide it different work uh, tasks. Carlos, uh, in Barcelona, mm -hmm. another country that of course everyone at the moment raises eyebrows, how did you experience um, the last few weeks? Well, uh, hello everyone and Heidi, thank you very, very much for the invitation. Um, yes, I mean, my personal experience has been actually quite interesting for many reasons, not only because I'm now in Spain, which is one of the countries with the most uh, strict lockdowns in Europe, but also because of the nature of my own research. Uh, actually, as you said, I'm working 
currently on a study, uh, I mean, a paper that studies the management of the Ebola outbreak in between 2013 and 2016, you know, and I'm relying on surveys and interviews for my data collection. So that had the COVID-19 had direct implications for, for my data collection itself. On the one hand, I was actually able to access people that otherwise I wouldn't have had access because they are too, let's say, important and busy uh, to reply to me normally. But uh, maybe now I'm thinking maybe of very high ranked politicians that are now out of office and have a job at the private sector. And now they feel that this, uh, this line of research is actually really important. And actually, I managed to reach them these days. On the other hand, of course, I, I have to get some insights from people that are actually working on the epidemiological side of the, of the crisis, which are quite a bit busy, you know, uh, trying to save the world these days uh, to reply to a, to a study of these characteristics. Um, so there's that. Um, otherwise, I, I think I cannot really complain besides, you know, the usual stress of the very first days where, I mean, at least I couldn't really work because I was just watching the news all the time basically i couldn't do anything else um but you know otherwise i had already done all my teaching for the year by the time the outbreak started um i have i'm lucky i have no fears for the security of my job i've actually heard really sad stories of uh, people i mean being cut uh, i mean people that made their monthly wage out of lecturing uh, being cut uh, and i mean that hasn't that, that that hasn't been my case i mean i received funding from the spanish government so i'm i'm settled there um, and, you know, um, I mean, when it comes to uh, what I, if I have uh, been sufficiently supported, I will talk later of, of what we are doing now at the UAC's Graduate Forum uh, Committee, actually. But uh, when it comes to my home institutions, I mean, I, 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 I'm getting my PhD degree from Pompeo Fabra and this university granted an extension for people to defend their thesis some months later. So that actually was quite helpful to, to reduce this stress burden. And also eBay has, I mean, the, the institution where I have my office has been also quite supportive by organizing virtual meetings for, for people to present their research. And they have actually worked great. I'm actually presenting on Friday, so I'm looking forward to that. So that would be my, my, my experience. Thank you. Thank you very much, Carlos. Again, I think three quite quite interesting points to see. Well, on the one hand, we see negative sides and we see, of course, more challenges for us where we probably will have to rethink of how we do research. But at the same time, we also see positive things happening. And I think, again, one of the things is also to notice that most of us, I think, have similar experiences. And I think that was also one of the motivations to start with this professional roundtable of saying, well, maybe we should share our pain, but also the positive things to see of how we can go forward in the next weeks. Thank you, Carlos. I'm now handing over to Mariana, who uh, is at University College Dublin and experienced the whole upheaval in her first year of PhD. Mariana, the floor is yours. Okay, thanks, Ivy. Um, yeah, I guess I'll share my story of where I was when this whole uh, uh, lockdown measures went into effect. So I was doing a um, two-week stay um, in uh, Brussels to do some field work uh, to carry out some exploratory interviews um, and I was supposed to be there from March 8th until March 21st and then of course um, 
as you know, uh, the days went on and as I saw more and more governments implementing lockdown measures, I decided that maybe it was um, time to um, get out of Belgium uh, in order not to be stuck there. And because uh, my sister was also brought at the moment, now I'm stranding, stranded in uh, Denmark for uh, two months now and we're waiting to uh, fly back home, which we should now be able to do. Um, but I was able to uh, sort of finish most of the interviews I had scheduled. Um, and as Carlos was saying, I think some people's agendas freed up. So that was good. They were actually more uh, available to, to have interviews and to speak with me. And, you know, as an MPhil and now PhD student with limited uh, research funds, I was sort of already used to relying a lot on phone interviews <laughs> and Skype interviews uh, to save up some travel money. Um, so in that sense, um, you know, the, the pandemic didn't uh, impact too much my work, but obviously, you know, you lose the sort of staying there, staying in a place for an extended period of time, trying uh, to, you know, speak face to face, have face to face interviews, elite interviews, which is what I mostly rely on. Um, being able to maybe uh, arrange some extra interviews while you're there that you hadn't uh, initially scheduled that that is you know something that you can only get when you do field work um, and I expect that people who rely more on ethnographic studies and focus groups will definitely be impacted negatively you know more more in the long run um, in terms of you know what was missing what was good I think um, you know, and I have to say this because my supervisor is here. No, I'm kidding. Um, but I think University College Dublin uh, responded very quickly. Um, they closed university very quickly. They said, um, we're going to prepare for to have online teaching and online exams at the end of the semester right away, as opposed to, you know, going back and forth. Um, the transition to I, I had to teach until the end of April um, and the transition to online teaching was very smooth. Um, as, as Carlos was saying, I think PhDs got some extensions on their deadlines, on their coursework, um, so I felt that was quite uh, nice. Um, even though I guess two points didn't affect me directly, maybe it's worth bringing them up for maybe the discussion at the end. Um, and one of them is, I think, uh, Carlos also mentioned this, you know, how casual workers and uh, early career researchers were n really negatively impacted by this. And I have, you know, colleagues at UCD, PhD students who, you know, had to adjust to the whole, you know, working from home pandemic thing, um, while also keep working part-time to support their studies, while also keeping up with their research and teaching, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, and then the last thing I'm going to mention is, um, that I think this really brought up some um, or really exacerbating some gender disparities in academia and I really you know don't know about um, the field of political science per se but I know in other fields um, that submissions to journals by women really dropped um, because of you know having to take care of children or you know household tasks uh, etc and in general I think this showed that there's no sort of uh, systemic or you know structured support system for people with caring responsibilities or families in general um, but I'm uh, leave it there uh, thank you very much Mariana uh, I think we experienced it a bit ourselves when we tried to find the most suitable time that would be possible for people 
to actually meet online and it's always this difficult the evening might be better for some but of course you know people with families might not necessarily be able then to join so i think there's also of course an organizational thing there but i think you you make a very important point that of course we have to be i think as a professional and as a discipline aware of how it shifts uh, a certain inequalities within our profession so that was our first round where we wanted to look uh, a bit of what were the experiences and also I think it's sometimes good to just hear well again we are in this together and I think uh, for example something that Carlos said this this idea that it sometimes felt very difficult to concentrate at, especially at the beginning I think was something that we that we all experienced again there were some macho behaviors on Twitter where you could see people saying oh I published not two articles in a week because I had time for writing but I think again this was not the majority uh, of, of experiences. So I think it's also good sometimes to say, okay, you know, we are all in this together. And maybe the way I experienced the crisis is, is not necessarily something bad or, or, or different from others. In the second round now, uh, we want to look a bit at the current situation. And I think we already started talking about this a bit uh, by, by, by thinking of how will it influence especially our qualitative research and the question that i asked to our speakers is what now especially for qualitative research what about for field work and again i noticed this when i had to fill in my risk assessment for my field work in the next year and i realized i actually don't know um, i also wanted to ask them if they have any tips to share of how they will adapt their research now in the months going forward um, and how much should we now all try to write papers on COVID-19? Or should we just you know, stay with our usual things and, and just try to, um, to keep going the way we did in the past? So these were the questions that I had for this round. Um, we will shake up the order a bit and then we'll hand over to Carlos first. Thank you again, um, Heidi. Uh, well, this is a very interesting question. Um, well, as Mariana was saying, uh, I was also already quite uh, adapted to this scenario. Basically, all the data collection that I've conducted since the beginning of my thesis has been virtual. Uh, I had to contact people involved in the management of crises in general that were stationed in so many different countries. And my research funds are also, as Mariana said, quite limited. So uh, basically, I was all I was doing was distributing surveys online and interviews uh, via Skype or the phone. So this hasn't changed at, um, at all. Um, and, you know, considering my, my low um, in experience, the fact that I'm just uh, doing my PhD, maybe giving tips, uh, giving advice uh, might sound a bit pretentious. I hope, uh, I hope I do not sound like that. Um, but it's true that especially for people that are just starting now, um, I mean, we need feedback. Okay. And, and, and face-to-face interactions are quite, uh, quite good to, for us to lose the fear, especially when we want to reach out more senior uh, people than we are. But my advice is just don't be afraid, just lose your fear. Uh, I mean, even from, from the beginning of my, my PhD, I have emailed people that I didn't know at all. I remember this professor in Norway, um, who whose research was very similar to mine. I didn't know him and I ended up Skyping with him for 30 minutes and we discussed our research. My experience in this sense has been super positive. I've become even braver over the years. And uh, the worst really that can happen is that people don't reply to your emails. Um, so, I mean, really go ahead because I mean, I, I am aware that now it's the time to get a bit feedback and uh, maybe we don't have as many opportunities um, as we normally do. So please um, be proactive. I, that, that would be one advice. And then 
another tip from from I mean the, the circumstances of the, of my data collection, I realized that people that are already retired actually are more likely to to reply when I whenever I'm sending a survey or reaching someone from an interview for an interview. The issue here is how do you reach these people because they don't have an institutional email address anymore. Uh, well, here my advice is dig deep. You'll find uh, you'll find them. Uh, I've done some crazy stuff to find the contact addresses of some of these people, but they are there. So if you if you dig deep enough, um, you can you can do it. And considering the the reshuffling of research and I mean. Of, to COVID, uh, to the COVID-19 topic, considering that I've actually been quite lucky uh, I mean, with the topic of my thesis, I really don't think there is much to reshuffle here. I mean, I guess in the future, I mean, now it's impossible considering the methodology that I'm using for my thesis to include now COVID-19. But I mean, I guess in the future, after I'm done with the thesis, if I continue in the academia, this is uh, something that I could do. But otherwise, uh, I don't unfortunately have any clues in this sense. Thank you. Thank you very much, Carlos. So be brave, be creative, and stay focused in whatever you do, I would summarize. Mariana, anything that you would add? Um, yeah, so I basically agree with 100% <laughs> with what Carlos said. I think, um, especially for early career researchers, it's uh, sometimes a little intimidating to reach out to these people <laughs> uh, and just, you know, just shamelessly follow up. Um, but I think, you know, that's really the only way. And um, especially, again, as I was saying before, if it's people who are, you know, not as busy now as this whole crisis being dealt with, uh, they might be, you know, even happier to discuss their own, you know, field of work um, with you. Um, and I think in terms of, you know, what you said about uh, risk contingency and applications and trying to, like, you know, argue uh, about how you're going to um, face this challenge. Yeah, I think that's going to be definitely something that uh, it's going to be hard, right, to, you know, think about the hundred possible uh, ways in which to tackle all the, you know, uh, challenges posed by this. But um, I think for sure, um, at least for my own thesis, I'll have to dedicate more time to reaching out to interviewees, setting up the interviews, especially because it's true some people are more available, but also because it's all, you know, emails and phones, uh, phone conversations. Sometimes people don't follow up to the emails, so they follow up to a certain point and they disappear. So I think, um, yeah, when, when thinking about research design uh, and setting up interviews, people really need to take into account that it's going to take time to set up all these interviews, confirm them, uh, etc. Also because, again, you know, the situation might look in a way one week and then completely different the week after. Um, and then on the point about, uh, oh, one last thing I wanted to say on this is that, you know, it hasn't happened to me, but I was thinking that maybe one challenge I could face uh, going forward is that people might be less willing to share confidential information over the phone or on Skype than they'd be in person. Even if, you know, you assure them that it's going to be confidential, it's not going to be quoted directly. But I was thinking that that might be something that, I don't know, we need to build a relationship of trust uh, before uh, really, you know, we get to the, to the juicy bits, uh, I guess. Um, and then very quick point on, uh, you know, should we change uh, our research focus to emphasize this, you know, COVID-19 angle? Um, you know, I'm not sure, 
you know, to what extent that is advisable or, or necessary. Obviously, if your research already, you know, as Carlos was saying, already focuses on uh, crisis management, then obviously it's, it's relevant. But, you know, subjects that were, you know, interesting and relevant before <laughs> COVID-19 are still relevant today, right? So, um, and then the risk might be, you know, to overcorrect uh, and then flood the sort of uh, academic market with, uh, you know, COVID-19 articles to the point where journal editors will uh, not, uh, not accept them anymore. Um, so, you know, I'd, I'd say integrate the, integrate into your research to the extent that it makes sense and don't force it because it will be obvious if, you know, you just mentioned COVID-19 to make it uh, fancy, but, you know, it doesn't actually fit. Uh, thank you very much, Marianne. And I think also a very important advice because I, bit, I think like Federica, the longer you are in the business, the more I forgot all these institutional insurances and requirements that were actually there. But especially now, I think it's, it's very important that you also always check with your institution. Are you insured if you go somewhere? What happens if things are canceled? So I think there's also a financial aspect, but of course also uh, a very strong security aspect, which I think sometimes we could ignore a bit more, but I think by now it's the time maybe to check with your institutions. Farika, anything that you would like to add? Well, I mean, uh, a lot has already been said. Thank you very much, Carlos and, uh, and Mariana. And I think that the, um, uh, there is a conversation to be had uh, about how to do interviews on Skype and Zoom uh, at maximum uh, effect, because um, uh, at the moment I'm still on the, you know, slightly skeptical side or rather uh, I may say I have been spoiled by the fact that uh, when you cultivate uh, um, your rapport with uh, interviewees over a number of years, then uh, it's much easier to get the confidential staff to get the, what's in the pipeline, etc. And I have a feeling that it will be very difficult to replicate that uh, um, type of interaction, uh, you know, via Skype. Um, in my view, the one of the risks uh, I'll say at the moment is that quantitative uh, analysis uh, um, goes a little bit faster than a qualitative analysis because I mean it might be much easier to carry out a quantitative analysis of, of trade or something based on an existing data set rather than uh, uh, interviews or ethnographic. Uh, uh, work of any kind at the moment. Uh, it might get better, but uh, there might be, you know, the, the, uh, there is an opening gap there between uh, uh, the two. So the, the way I, uh, I'm looking at this is that qualitative analysis, in my view, should focus on what it does best, which is conceptual analysis, first of all. Um, so reread the literature, broaden the range of uh, uh, scholars uh, that it's uh, um, worth reading, that is my to-do list. Uh, because I'm talking just for myself, I'm certainly guilty of uh, at times uh, using primary research to tell me what secondary literature to read uh, rather than read the secondary uh, material and then doing primary research. So I'm using this time to sort of uh, try at least to reprogram my uh, brain, even if I am painfully aware that it, it 
turns out to be a sort of slow research, a bit like a slow food, <laughs> a movement of the world, so taking much more time than uh, I'm used to. Uh, the other thing that uh, I think uh, um, might be, at least are on my to-do list, is make a better use of online material. Um, there are loads of uh, um, audio and video uh, interviews that uh, officials uh, have given, and I think that that could be some, something that we learn to refer to in our writing in a standard way. There are ethical concerns because you know you cannot just take a, a juicy bit out of context. But I think that uh, uh, very much like it is customary uh, to refer to interview material or to secondary material, I think that you know there is a sort of a, an area in between where we could learn uh, to extract uh, empirical evidence a bit better. Uh, having then uh, said this for my <laughs> ongoing uh, research project on borders and border management, um, my focus will be uh, in these uh, months and weeks on two sources. One is uh, investigative journalism, because I think that there is a tendency to look at media like a newspaper mini article, while instead I think that there are uh, benefits of scale in investing in finding journalists that have a knowledge of the terrain uh, and have actually, you know, they have cultivated their um, interviewees and uh, um, they have a knowledge of the field that they can uh, pass on. And the second source is definitely uh, NGO uh, publications, which, you know, at times it can be a bit too detail rich for uh, our liking, but they can also give a lot of interesting little examples or enlightening uh, episodes, you know, snippets of the empirical evidence when we cannot observe it uh, directly. Uh, uh, oh, and yes, and the third thing uh, I'm looking into is parliamentary discussions. Um, because here too, you know, you have people that speak the mind, say what they think, and that is also a nice environment. Um, in a way, uh, in my view, this might be uh, a good opportunity to go uh, to dig a little bit deeper uh, while we wait to start with interviews as usual uh, again. And this digging a little bit deeper might help us also overcome something that I, I was beginning to really dislike the, the sort of the ubiquitous semi-structured interview. You know, um, it seems to me that you can't read a piece of research or an article or any, a paper or whatever without having, you know, the semi-structured interviews, uh, which, you know, yes, I, I, I've done it, I continue to do it, but I'm beginning to wonder if we can do something a little bit better uh, once we get to those uh, uh, interviewees. Um, thank you. Uh, thank you much, very much, Federic. I think a few very useful points. So to also say, maybe not continue doing what you do just online now. I think a lot of things we also saw on the teaching side nowadays. Mm -hmm. uh, but at the same time, also actually going back to basics and actually saying, you know, what about triangulation? How do we use sources? And do we actually only need interviews or how can we actually take 
the added value of qualitative research uh, much more seriously and emphasize this a bit more. I think that already gives us a very good step to this last question um, that I wanted to, to, to raise um, before we go to, and open up the discussion. That's really about the future impact. So what impact do you think it will have in the long run on the discipline, on our research? Uh, but also I think there is a question to be asked, what impact should it have? So I already remember that uh, before the pandemic and the restrictions coming in place, there was of course a debate about how much should academics travel? What about our ecological footprint? What about climate change? And maybe we should think about other ways of how to organize our exchanges. And so in this last round, I just wanted to give the floor once more to our speakers to say, you know, maybe this is a good moment to lose the bad and keep the good. What would you think should we focus on? And I will now give the floor first to Mariana. Thank you. Um, yes, I'll be very brief. Um, I think, well, in terms of, you know, reducing the carbon footprint, um, I'm based on an island. So <laughs> the only way in and out is flying. Um, and, you know, uh, so long as there's a risk of contagion and, you know, so long as the plane tickets remain so expensive, uh, I think I'll have to definitely, you know, reduce uh, just the, the amount of traveling. Um, and this, you know, might sort of lead to a change in the direction of reducing the number of events, you know, once, uh, you know, in-person events are, are possible again, maybe reducing the number of events, sizing them down um, in favor of, you know, quality maybe, um, so that, you know, if there's fewer events throughout the year, then it means that maybe there's a little bit more attention uh, paid to, you know, what kind of paper I'm going to present or, you know, how uh, many, you know, networking events I'm going to touch to this uh, conference and so on. Um, I think so long as events are, are um, held online, uh, as you know, I think, ID you were thinking about when, when organizing this, this event, you were thinking, okay, let's keep it not too long because, you know, being on Zoom for six hours, it's, it's a bit uh, tiring. Um, so I think in that sense, uh, you know, it'll be quicker, maybe more frequent, but quicker exchanges. Um, I'm not entirely sure how that's going to impact. Maybe again, it's going gonna, it's gonna to improve quality because people are going to think more about what they have to say. Um, and, you know, I think one great thing that's come out of the situation is uh, event series like this one. And maybe I'm, you know, praising myself here. Um, but I think, you know, m m this more, you know, hands-on practical advice um, is extremely useful, especially for, you know, early career researchers, you know, PhD students. Uh, it's, it's great. Um, so, you know, thank you for organizing uh, and everybody else who's, who's participating in, in the series. Um, you know, and finally, I really, really hope this is going to show that uh, precarious workers, uh, female academics uh, really struggle when the situation is, you know, normal. And then under these extraordinary circumstances, I really hope, you know, I don't know, there's some push from universities, from central governments to really set up uh, childcare facilities in universities to have, you know, spend more in research and academia and funding, you know, especially early career researchers. Um, but, you know, hopefully. <laughs> Thank you very much, Mariana. Uh, we, of course, would all hope that our ministers are listening 
and uh, taking your, your, your contribution very seriously. So I think a very important point is maybe doing less but better. And again, here my teaching experience comes in. I think also this idea of maybe we should, it forces us to actually think what is the objectives of our exchanges and how can we find the right tools. And I think that might actually be something quite useful. And I remember many conferences where time and again, we had this discussion, maybe not another panel, maybe not another pepper presentation, but nevertheless, we never had this, this push to, to actually change things because we were used to it. So maybe that's not a good time. Carlos. Would you agree? Would you add anything? Thank you, Heidi. Uh, well, of course, I do agree with everything that uh, Mariana uh, has said on, on this topic. Um, I mean, the first lesson I would take is that, uh, I mean, being online is an option. Uh, people have had to adapt, but uh, I mean, we have done it quite rapidly and quite successfully, I would say as well. Uh, I will give you an example. Uh, you know, uh, at the grad, uh, UAC's Graduate Forum Committee, we obviously, as many other institutions, we had to cancel our annual conference, which was going to take place in July in Berlin. <clears throat> this was a pity because uh, basically it allowed a space for, for PhDs and early career researchers to interact and network with each other, get to know more people. And, you know, also it's a source of funding for, for people that, you know, when you're at a very initial stage in your career, it's not that common that you get uh, funded, you know, an opportunity funded uh, to present your research. However, there was a reaction, you know, we, we, we um, set up this uh, series of uh, webinars, right? And uh, currently, I mean, uh, I mean, we are focused, I mean, each session is focused on a different topic. I mean, just in case and people don't know yet about it. Um, I mean, their PhDs and early career researchers, this is actually the focus uh, of these seminars, will have the opportunity as well to present the research. And, you know, the topic, uh, I mean, we have uh, celebrated one on security policy and external relations, but we're actually planning uh, sessions on topics such as Brexit, justice and home affairs, environmental policy, global governance, crisis management, there is information uh, on, in the social media, just in case you wanna you wanna have a look at it. So it is possible to adapt, um, actually. And uh, considering, I mean, the question about uh, traveling, I do believe uh, in the value of of traveling. I mean, again, uh, especially for people that are starting in this world, the value of face to face networking. Um, I mean, for example, with senior people. But I mean, and also because of what I said before, I think face-to-face -face contact is very important uh, for people that are starting to lose their fear, to see that you know, uh, more senior people are there, are, are supportive uh, and are available, are nice people, right? You know? um, but of course, for now, that, that will have to wait. Um, and one final word about, about uh, should we traveling less? Should we traveling less? Um, I actually have something to say about conferences that are organized in very, very remote areas uh, where people have um, quite, I mean, you have to take a very long flight to reach it. And I mean, most people uh, have to do that, right? Maybe some of you can, can think of examples. I was quite struck by the, by the locations of some central conferences even this year. Uh, so even if the venues might seem attractive, just we have to bear in mind what the impact on the atmosphere of, of such long distance traveling will be. I mean, I could understand that here being climate friendly uh, might conflict with the inclusiveness of, 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 of areas that might not be as centrally located. And, and I mean, I'm from Spain, you know, it's in a corner of the continent. So it's maybe not the best argument, uh, I mean, for, for, my, for my country, right? But I mean, we are entering in a new era and it's not only about post-COVID, it's about climate change. So 
I think it's now time to behave responsibly. I mean, the society has, has learned it the hard way so far, but I mean, I will try to be hopeful. I will be positive and keep hoping that we will have learned that, uh, you know, we have to behave responsibly. It's not uh, an option, it's a must. Thank you. Thank you very much, Carlos. I think also a very important point to consider that of course, for those of us with established networks, it's maybe a bit easier to stay in touch with our colleagues, uh, but maybe all of us. So, and I, here I also would invite all PhD students and early career scholars. I think you also have to think what can we do to actually be inclusive, create inclusive networks and bring people together. And Carlos already mentioned the USS Created Forum. I also want to mention USS again. I think especially in these times, actually our associations can do an important, important job. In, in also ensuring that it's not always the usual networks, but that they be actually as inclusive as possible. Federica, anything you would like to add before? Well, um, I would like to very much stress the point that uh, Mariana uh, first uh, raised about the, the gender and uh, equality, uh, because it's all crisis, but this crisis in particular will increase the gender gap. Uh, I mean, the caring responsibilities are overwhelmingly uh, falling onto women and therefore female scholars are going to bear the brunt of it. Um, to bring an example, at the moment at LSE we're discussing whether to impose a six month blank period over promotions or whether it would be more gender blind to go on an ad hoc basis. But What's clear is that neither is, um, you know, helping or even keeping it a level playground. Um, and therefore, either way, uh, you know, female scholars are not going to be promoted. Um, that's uh, in the, the basics uh, of it all. Um, and this will be magnified by the fact that uh, um, quantitative studies tend to be uh, more uh, the uh, remit of uh, uh, male scholars. And so you have sort of a double <laughs> uh, gap uh, opening uh, uh, up. And it will definitely very, very, uh, be very, very interesting to see in a year's time, uh, you know, to do a gender study of articles published. Because, I mean, that will give us a sense of how big the magnitude of the problem it is. How to address it? I mean, in a way, we need targeted initiatives, we need tighter networks, but most importantly, we need an awareness of gender issues so that, you know, it doesn't become a conversation, for instance, just among female scholars, but it's a professional issue about the fact that, you know, half of the world that has, you know, more caring responsibilities than others, and this uh, creates an issue. Uh, the second point I would like to uh, stress is that, in fact, I was uh, truly puzzled to see how many big conferences, um, and this is a recorded uh, thing, so I won't name which, but we can say basically all of them uh, have been simply postponed to 2021. And 
to me, you know, instead there is a lesson to be learned and I'm happy that the UAC uh, graduate forum instead uh, is going in a different uh, direction because uh, big conferences uh, respond to many different needs and some of them can easily be brought online. Uh, you know, presentations, uh, participation in seminars, but even conversations like this one, um, I think it's, it's good that we can have it uh, online and I hope that we can continue to have these uh, conversations throughout months uh, uh, and for the foreseeable future. Um, there was a tendency already before to have seminars recorded and then put online, but I think it is much more immediate if we leave, if we open up the possibility to online participants or to participate directly in the seminar uh, as it happens, it's much more direct. And I hope that this will continue. Uh, in relation to travel, rather than, you know, blind flying less, uh, in my view, would be good if we aim to fly better, so to say. <laughs> so to make better use of the travel uh, that we uh, do. So that, yes, we travel a bit less, but also once we are in a place, it does make sense to try to use all the possible options, so to engage with the local university, with the local PhD community, um, with the local diplomatic community, uh, in order to maximize uh, what we get. Um, I can see it so many times in the past uh, at LSE and uh, here at the European University Institute where I'm based at the moment. I mean, you just happen to know that, you know, tomorrow there is a seminar with somebody, uh, you know, who will then leave and you don't have the opportunity to engage with that scholar, even if, you know, your research is directly relevant and, you know, you have one shot, either you go to the seminar or that's it. Uh, and I hope that in the future we will be able to imagine less structured, less formal ways of engaging uh, among each other as a profession, uh, as well as with the empirical context where we're going to travel to. Um, one word on the remote versus central location that Carlos mentioned. Um, I've been in, in, uh, in a few conversations about this because uh, remote places would like to be more central. <laughs> and, uh, you know, um, therefore, should, should you really say to a remote location, sorry, we're not going to travel to, you know, uh, see your city because, I mean, it would involve uh, changing flights. Uh, or or not, you know, that's a bit of a, a dilemma, which I think, however, should be uh, responded by saying, okay, if we do end up traveling to the remote location, we should even more engage with the local reality and learn about the local history and make an effort not to treat it as if it was, you know, just an airport venue, so to say. I think that, you know, that could be a, a way out. So to fly less, but to fly better uh, at the same time. Uh, thank you very much um, to all three of our speakers. I think they got, got us, gave us now uh, a lot to think about and also to talk about. Um, the way we want to move forward, so we would like to use maybe the next 20 minutes to open up the floor. And as already was mentioning, um, I would ask you to raise your hand 
if you want to take the floor, you can either ask a question, comment, or you know, add an, an additional topic that maybe we didn't discuss yet. In order to go on the speakers list, uh, please go to participants. So if you hover over your screen on the bottom, you see participants. Uh, and normally a window should open on your right side of the screen. And if you look at the bottom, you see the blue hand, the raised hand. So if you click, it, I'll do it once more again, um, uh, the, the blue hand will appear. Maybe if you want to try, everyone can try for a moment to find the blue hand and raise it. Yeah, I see a few blue hands, very good. So this way you would go on a speaker's list. What I would do is I would collect always a few comments and then maybe give the floor back to, to our speakers um, to see what, what they think. So who wants to take the first floor? I see Barish had raised his hands. I assume he still wants to talk. Uh, so I would ask, invite Barish to unmute your microphone. You can also switch on, on your, your camera if you prefer. The floor is yours. Yeah, okay. Um, hi, everyone. Uh, it's great to uh, be back with the Norcia community. Um, the first time I've been to, the, uh, to a Norcia event was in 2018 in Barcelona, which was the first uh, network conference of Norcia where I met uh, people like Heidi and Federica for the first time. And, um, that was the first time I also met my now PhD supervisor, um, or strangely, but I, back then I didn't know that I was he was going to be my PhD supervisor, so it was a strange coincidence. Um, the, a lot of food for thought, I think, from this uh, very useful discussion. And um, in these difficult times, we had we have a lot of challenges about you know conducting research and also um, particularly for those um, not just you know established scholars but also PhD candidates like myself. Um, I'm nowadays conducting uh, interviews remotely with people. Um, some of them retired, some of them uh, are still in their roles. But I've noticed that if they are in diplomatic posts, they are working around the clock. And um, indeed, I mean, during these times, it's very difficult for them to um, find enough time to answer uh, my questions. And sometimes they prefer to do it via email, uh, which had its own challenges. You know, you don't, you have a, you have one shot, and you don't want to. Um, and leave out any significant um, questions. Uh, but other than that, um, um, I think this can also provide some, you know, opportunities. I mean, for example, I uh, I was uh, unable to go to field because I couldn't secure uh, a good amount of funding. So I was planning to do online interviews anyway. So um, this, I think, gave me another reason for people uh, to, uh, to, do inter to do interviews remotely. And in this case, you don't have to you know, give a detailed explanations of why you are doing uh, online um, um, interviews when you contact uh, people. Uh, maybe as a question, um, especially for those who uh, really need to go to field. I mean, like I said, I'm, I'm, I can conduct online interviews to a certain point, but um, there are uh, people like, as mentioned in the discussion, um, focus group research, and also some other research that rely more on um, the on the ground research. Um, do you think that that will be like a um, like a COVID generation of PhD students, where assessments uh, of PhD thesis are going to change in a way to consider uh, the conditions under which they have written their PhDs, especially during these times? Uh, maybe the the people who are going to graduate in 2021 or 22 who took significant restrictions. 
uh, during this time. Do you think there will be, like I said, a kind of a COVID generation of PhD graduates um, who will be subject to sort of a different changed kind of assessment criteria? Um, of course, not, this doesn't mean that, I mean, uh, people will be more lenient towards their thesis, but maybe their, their circumstances might be considered if they lose a lot of time um, 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 during uh, this, uh, this crisis. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Barish. I have now Thomas and Ben on the list. And before I hand over to Thomas, I should also say, please introduce yourself to everyone else. I forgot to tell this to, to Barish, who is from the University of Kent. Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, excuse me. It's fine. Thank you, Barish. So if you could switch just off your camera again and uh, lower your hand, and then I will hand over to Thomas and invite him to switch on his microphone, switch on his screen, and the floor is yours. Hi, thank you very much. And thanks a lot to, to all of you for the, for the introduction. I wonder, you know, listen, listening to you, I, I wonder to what extent this is actually different. You know, to, to what extent this situation is really different. All the issues that you mentioned, gender gap, uh, flying more or less, periphery and the center, building the trust with your interviewees. This is something that has been there all the time in a way. So, so to what extent do you think the, this crisis just, uh, you know, revealed it more so that we feel it more, we see it more? I mean, even the procrastination, right? Okay, I, I understand that you read, read the news, but I mean, there's always something on the news that you need to focus on. There was Brexit, there was Trump, there was a Brexit again and again and again and again for the past three years. And there was always something very important that you really needed to focus on and you really wanted to follow. So, so I wondered if you, if you can think again in a way, I would like to challenge you, you know, what's really new? Uh, and, and, and I understand that for a PhD student, obviously, this might be a very important, there might be this very important thing of time, uh, which is not there for us in a way, luckily being after some years after the PhD. But in a sense, the, the universities, you know, understood that in a way and prolonged the studies. And I understand that there might be financial issues and, and all of that. But, but and that's fair enough. I mean, that's fair enough. But in terms of research, I, I wonder to what extent this, this COVID thing is really, really qualitatively different and introducing a qualitatively different period of time for doing research. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much, uh, Thomas. I now have Ben and Aki on my list. So I will hand over to Ben and he already unmuted. That's wonderful. Ben, the floor is yours. Hey, I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can get my, uh, my video camera to work. Uh, but just uh, first, a quick response to Thomas. I think I think we are in a, a qualitatively different time, um, not least because what I think the COVID virus is doing is is accelerating and turbocharging issues that we are aware of, uh, particularly with respect to precarious workers and and and, and on gender. It, it's it's not just revealing things; it is making things profoundly worse uh, and profoundly more difficult for those for those colleagues involved. So I think I think that is a difference. Um, and then two, two just quick comments. The first that I think we have to bear in mind is that this crisis is creating in the universities a huge financial challenge. Uh, many of our universities, in order to make up for lack of public funding, uh, have relied very heavily on the attraction of international students. Uh, that market, as I can see, as I can say from personal experience, that market is collapsing before our very eyes. 
universities are facing ferociously and an enormous deficits, uh, and that is only going to further worsen and exacerbate issues with respect to precariousness, with respect to funding, with respect to research resources, and, and we don't yet know what universities are going to do beyond, as we've already seen, them letting go uh, key staff uh, and particularly early career staff. Um, and the final comment, I suppose, is, is a very personal one, and I don't know whether it helps or hinders coming from, uh, God help me, a more senior colleague. Um, and that is to say, to be kind to yourselves. Um, this is an extraordinary moment. Um, some of us have had personal losses. Some of us are aware of personal losses. Um, I have to say, um, speaking very personally, my own attention span uh, is about 15 minutes at the moment in terms of writing, in terms of reading, and in terms of working. Um, and I think we do need to just give ourselves a little space um, and, and not fall into the trap of, well, how do I use this, the, this circumstance to maximize my professional endeavors? Um, just be a little bit kind to each other. Uh, thank you very much, Ben. Um, there's a few very important issues again. I think especially the, the last one, I think, is if, if you take one thing away from today, I think remember this one. Uh, I now have Aki on the list. Uh, I don't see any other hands. So if you still want to, to contribute, maybe raise your hand now. Otherwise, I would give the floor to Aki and then return to our speakers to give them the possibility to reply. Aki, the floor is yours. Hi, um, my name is Aki Tonami. I'm from Japan. I'm based in Tokyo. And then I'm sorry, I really wanted to participate from uh, the start of the, uh, the workshop. It's so nice to see you again, Heidi. Um, I met her when uh, uh, Norcia Group invited me for a workshop at Masada University in Tokyo. Um, and the reason why I was late is uh, because I was teaching online. I teach um, MBA students who are working uh, full time. And so my teaching began from six o'clock um, in the evening and ended at nine o'clock. And related to that, um, I was wondering, um, so of course the situation in Japan or Asia is a bit different from um, uh, what's going on in Europe and I'm trying to follow and understand the situation in Europe as much as possible. Uh, so it's, um, but it, it's of course difficult because I don't get to visit um, precisely because of what's going on. Uh, so uh, please uh, forgive me if my question is somewhat kind of um, maybe a little bit insensitive or a little bit out of scope. But the, the, my uh, question that I would like to ask you is, um, how are you coping in terms of teaching uh, supervising students that um, it, it, how, how do you navigate them and changing the subject uh, or the change in the field given uh, given the COVID crisis because of course compared to a little bit more established researchers like us they have much shorter uh, kind of um, uh, time to focus on their uh, thesis or uh, master's master's thesis so they, so they need to finish their field work as soon as possible so they can't postpone in a sense. So how do you, how do you, uh, in a way, suggest different subjects, or how, how do you, uh, how have you suggested different methods of uh, collecting data and so forth? Um, my second question is the, how are you navigating uh, in terms of uh, submitting research proposal to link everything to COVID nineteen? So right now in Japan, <laughs> there's a huge effort from the government and all the ministries to say, do some research related to COVID-19. 
And then also from the university, we're encouraged to apply for funding that is related to COVID-19. But then if you, well, for better was COVID-19 so multifaceted, so you can create a story to link what you do to this crisis. But um, that feels a little bit disingenuous as well. Right. So how, how, how do you make any efforts? I was actually surprised to see the uh, poll results that many of you don't feel the effect. But how do you kind of, um, in a way, maintain or sell your research that may not be directly related to COVID-19? Thank you. Thank you very much, Aki. And I don't even dare to ask what time it is in Japan, because I think it must be not two in the night or something. So it's really nice uh, that, that you stayed up so long to, to be with us. And I think it's also probably one of the advantages now that we actually can connect much easier uh, across long distances. A lot of comments, a lot of difficult questions. Um, and I would like now to give the floor back to our, our three speakers and to invite them to maybe pick and choose uh, two or three elements that they want to respond to. Um, maybe not not everything. And if you agree, I would start in reverse order. So I would give the floor first, first to Mariana, then Carlos, and then Federica. Uh, Mariana, the floor is yours. Thank you so much for all the questions, and especially to uh, Aki, if I may, for <laughs> uh, sticking with us it's so late. Um, yes, I, you know, I, I think I'm qualified to answer only some of the uh, questions, not being a supervisor, um, really, but you know, I think in response to Thomas's question, um, you know, have things really changed? Um, they have. <laughs> they have, I think, um, so for me, one big uh, change um, is not being able to, you know, just bump into your supervisor or a professor in the department and just ask a question, right? You know, I mean, it seems silly, <laughs> But you know, you have to write an email, you have to wait for the reply, you have to set up a meeting. If it's about a meeting, find a time that's convenient. Maybe the email doesn't get replied to. And so everything, even the smallest doubt, then you have to live with it for, you know, a few days or a few weeks because, you know, of course it's difficult for everybody, right? Um, and I think that's, you know, a, a tiny detail. And then as uh, I think we were saying, for me and the type of research I do, I think in terms of field work, it doesn't change too much, but already, you know, for Federico has to travel to Tunisia and then has to be pushed for a year or for people who, you know, have to rely on focus group. How do you do? Do you do it on Zoom? But then does it change, you know, the entirety of your results because people, you know, just interact differently or say different things online? Uh, what about ethnographic work? You know, can you even do it? When will you be able to do it? Um, and then the final thing, as Ben was saying, you know, funding. <laughs> so I think for in our uh, department, the uh, scholarship a scheme that I'm on at the moment has been suspended for next year, right? So people who apply will apply, will have no chance of applying to a, or being considered for a scholarship, which, you know, means that we'll have less PhD students or only a certain type of PhD student, right? And, and I think that fundamentally changes the the profile and the shape of departments. Um, but, you know, I, I, I see where the question was coming from. Um, and then just a very quick comment, you know, again, I'm not a, a supervisor um, and I teach only as a, as a tutor. 
But I think from the feedback I had from undergraduate students, um, as hard as it is, obviously, you know, to be on top of your emails, but, you know, the feedback I got from them was, you know, thank you so much for replying to emails quickly. Thank you so much for, you know, making us feel that you were there on the other side of the screen. Because um, I think, you know, sometimes, I think especially for undergraduate students and first year students, it's so hard for them to feel engaged when they're there physically and you're there physically and there's face-to-face -face interaction. So, you know, maybe for them to just feel like they're floating in the like <laughs> uh, universe without any like reference point or somebody who's, you know, getting back to them promptly uh, will, you know, make them more disinterested, make them fall behind on their work. Um, but, you know, I know that Aki was, was asking more in terms of PhD supervision. I, I thought I'd throw that in there. Um, and that's all I have to say. Thank you very much, Mariana. So maybe to paraphrase Ben a bit, be kind to yourself, but also be kind to others. And I think especially in the teaching side, you will see this. And I think it always reminds me to my early years of my PhD, where I felt very lonely, although I was in a room with a lot of people. So of course, I think we should be aware that it's not only that we feel very individual in our little rooms at the moment, but of course, that also goes for students. At the same time, I think also an important consideration again in terms of equality um, those with teaching contracts will spend more time in teaching and that of course might again bring certain disadvantages when it comes to combining teaching and research in the right manner I think something we have to be aware of thank you Mariano Carlos two three points that you would like to summarize synthesize at the end thank you Heidi <clears throat> yes I do have some some points to to raise here um, again, in response to, to Thomas here, I, to a certain extent, agree that most of the issues that we're experiencing now were already there, <clears throat> but um, there has definitely been a change. Um, I mean, in, 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 in two different ways, in my opinion. First of all, some tools that were there to deal with some of the situations. For example, I could think of stress burdens. They, yes, they were there. Uh, mental health issues. Yes, of course, they were there. Vulnerability issues. Yes, of course, they were there as well. Um, family responsibilities, I mean, how to reconcile um, your work and your, and your private life, that was also there. That was an issue for PhD students and early career researchers and, you know, researchers of all, of all kinds, of course. But uh, before there were some, some tools to, to deal with the situation, maybe you could, uh, you could um, have your kids, uh, I mean, for part of the day, they, they, they would not be with you now. Um, they are at home, I mean, especially... Uh, for the weeks that in Spain, we basically couldn't leave home for anything. So uh, think about these people. I mean, they just had no way to to get around this problem. Um, how do you how do you uh, get around the situation uh, situations of vulnerability that have been definitely exacerbated at the moment? Um, I mean, there were some institutional tools, be financial resources that are not available and available anymore therefore the situation of vulnerability of these people yes of course it was there but now the degree is, is completely completely different i think so yes to, to some extent i do agree but i do think that there has been some qualitative change in here as well um also uh, well uh, kind of in response a bit i mean uh, tangentially to what aki was saying again i'm not a supervisor either uh, but i assume i mean from my very very uh, lay point of view here right that um, it also could depend on the stage uh, of, the, of the of the PhD for example right if uh, someone is at a very advanced uh, stage maybe the ability to to get around this and and change your research is uh, a bit a bit um, 
lower, right? And that brings me to, to the last point that I wanted to, to make uh, about what Barish uh, asked. And by the way, uh, hi Barish, it's really nice to see you again. Um, well, I do think that when it comes to assessment and when it comes to selection process, again, I'm not involved there. So this is something, I mean, a very personal opinion not founded by experience, but there has to be a bit more digging uh, as to the circumstances of this person, right? Again, bringing us back to the point that Thomas made, this was a point that was already there. Everybody has different circumstances, right? Um, everybody could lose their could could lose their loved ones in the beginning of their uh, in the middle of their PhD, for example, and that could affect their their research. But now, I mean, these 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 issues are even more more prominent, right? So I do think that I mean, in my opinion, there should be more 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 of a research as to the circumstances that surround every candidate for a given position. And um, yes, I mean, that basically would be, would be my, my point. Less, less um, focus, at least initial, on the, on the, um, produ uh, the product of the, of the research, right? How much have you produced in this uh, couple of years? And more questions as to why did you produce or did not produce, right? Because of course, what you're what you're evaluating, I assume, is the ability of the researcher to produce research in the future, right? So here you will not only have to take into account the production in the past, but the circumstances surrounding this production. Thank you. Thank you very much, Carlos. I think also, of course, the debate that will come back. And for those of you who are interested, on the 23rd of June, we are going to have a naughty roundtable discussion about publishing and career advancements and uh, other issues that I think many of us are thinking about. So I think we will come back then to this topic. Check the Naughty website for future links. Federica, our last comments. Well, I mean, uh, to Baris, nice to see you. Um, it's, uh, it's difficult to say. Uh, my feeling is that universities will be uh, happier to grant an extension than to change the assessment criteria. So I'm speaking just for LSE, but a six months extension, it's uh, now relatively easy to get, even if you have a scholarship, uh, which is quite generous, but at the same time, leniency, I don't know, I don't know, because in the future, uh, any PhD will be a PhD. And so um, that is, I think, if you want, there is a little bit of hypocrisy in that, but at the same time, it might push, at least I hope, uh, PhD students to be more daring and reaching out, uh, doing things that um, they didn't think about before and get creative uh, with what they have. Um, networks such as Nautia should you know, actually provide the help to do that. Uh, at least this is my hope. Uh, to Thomas, um, I hope that you uh, will forgive me if I tease you a little bit, uh, but the fact that you can ask this question, it's, it's beautiful. I'm delighted that there are people like that, that can ask this question, uh, because uh, it reminds me at the very beginning of the pandemic, I received an email from a German uh, colleague who really you know, didn't see what was coming. Well, instead, being based in Italy, I could see what was coming very, very uh, much staring it in the face. 
Um, and at times it, 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 is, it is difficult to communicate, you know, personal experiences. Uh, but in my view, the bottom line, uh, the, the legacy of COVID, at least for me, it's the huge degree of uncertainty uh, that it now um, we have to live with. Uncertainty about how we're going to teach next year. Is it going to be all online or physical presence and online? Um, when will we be able to restart our normal life? Will our normal life ever uh, begin again? I mean, um, it's the degree of uncertainty that I think changes uh, everything. Apart from the fact that everything that had an online component has sped up dramatically, everything that did not have an online component has slowed down dramatically. I would say that this is probably how I would uh, uh, put it. Uh, the point that Ben raised about the financial problems of universities, it's, it's huge. And uh, uh, the um, paradoxical thing is that the better the university, the bigger the problem. So, you know, all local colleges will be able to weather this crisis with little problem, uh, while instead the big universities relying on international students are going to suffer tremendously. Uh, uh, for LSC, the financial loss for next year is of a magnitude that I didn't think it was possible. Uh, we're talking about 50% of students uh, unlikely to come to LSE, uh, which uh, if you, I mean, given that, yes, we are trying to minimize uh, um, losses here and there, but still it is an incredible number. We're sure that in the future, you know, they will come back and maybe more, uh, but in the short time, it will be very difficult to, to find ways to bridge uh, the, um, you know, from now uh, to then. And last point uh, on Aki, uh, Aki's remark, and it's excellent, you know, the, in a way, the silver lining of this crisis is that we can organize these things and connect across continents and talk about the profession just like that. Uh, so that's great. Um, uh, I like your question about, uh, you know, how do you navigate the fact that governments are all pushing for, you know, do research with COVID-19 focus. Um, I was invited the other day to a webinar on the Italian electoral law and COVID-19. And I was really thinking, you know, so what, what is the connection? You know, the, the, the law has not changed. The elections are not coming up soon. But, you know, clearly people are just uh, attaching them and the COVID-19 to make it look topical. Um, in my view, however, the best way to address COVID-19 as a research topic is as one of the many elements in the context. Uh, so, you know, uh, we are navigating a different geopolitical environment, we're navigating a different uh, um, politi political or populist environment, we're also navigating an environment where COVID-19 will continue to play a role for a number of months, if not years, as well as making other issues much worse. Uh, we were hoping that austerity uh, was coming to an end uh, and instead what is most likely to happen is that there will be a stretch of uh, uh, you know, spending uh, by governments which is followed by more austerity <laughs> as they will have to rebalance their budgets. Uh, so I think that you know, the, the more 
at least for me, the most honest way to uh, address COVID-19, it's not necessarily on the short-term impact, but in also, uh, and especially in the mid to long-term impact it's going to have. Thank you very much. Um, I will not try to summarize or synthesize this now, uh, because I think, again, it's just the start of a conversation. There are lots of different things that hopefully will come back in the future. I want to thank everyone for participating. Thank especially our three speakers uh, for sharing also their, their exper experiences so openly. Uh, I think that, that that is really the thing that we have to do more, raising awareness, having a conversation. And if this was um, an opportunity to get this started, I think then we achieved our objective. I just wanted to remind everyone of a few things. Um, first of all, this event is recorded. So in case you have problems with this, please be in touch with me. In case you have ideas for future events or you would like to organize something, we would always be happy to also give, in the end, the activity to someone else. Uh, again, be in touch. Um, I think one thing is also still to find out what is actually that we can ha help uh, to foster our community. If our conversation um, created any ideas for blog posts or resources, our Oasis team is always very happy to share, share them via the Oasis blog, via the Oasis resource site. We're also very happy to add them to our Nordier website and to the blogs there. So if you have anything that you think could be useful for others, um, please feel free to get in touch. Uh, again, thanks so much for participating. I realized only now how much I actually missed our Nordier community. So I hope we can continue this in the next weeks. For now, always on Tuesdays at one or two o'clock uh, Brussels time. And I'm aware that not everyone had the opportunity to speak, but I hope we can, you know, rotate in the future to really also give people the opportunity to engage actively. Thank you so much and have a good afternoon.